This is episode 74 of the Swallier Pride podcast, and today's guest is Kelsey Day. Kelsey is an SLP with six years of experience in the acute care setting. She received her master's degree from Northwestern University, where she was trained in dysphagia diagnostics and video fluoroscopy by Dr. Jerry Logaman. Kelsey now serves as the lead SLP at California Hospital Medical Center, a level two trauma center and primary stroke center in downtown LA, where she specializes in dysphagia care for the critically ill, multi-trauma, and trach vent-dependent populations. Kelsey launched the FEAST program at her hospital to facilitate early swallowing rehab for patients requiring mechanical ventilation. She performs over a 1,000 combined video fluoroscopies and fees annually at her facility and mentors new SLPs in dysphagia instrumentation. She is committed to the education of new clinicians currently supervising multiple clinical fellows in acute care and guest lecturing at Cal State University, Fullerton. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hi, Kelsey. Hi, thank you so much for having me on today. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. I am so excited to have you. We were just, Kelsey and I were just talking. She got on and she's like, I'm in sunny California and I'm sitting here miserable. We're in a blizzard and I'm getting three feet of snow. So I'm going to look out her sunny window and <laughs> wish so I was there. me to even bring up. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. But you did go to Northwestern for grad school. So you feel yeah. my snowy, freezing, cold pain. Right, right. I know it well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Kelsey, why don't you explain, tell the people who you are. Yeah, so I am in acute care SLP. So I'm the lead speech pathologist at California Hospital Medical Center, which is a level two trauma center. We're a stroke center. So I've been in acute care for six years. I started with my clinical fellowship there and I fell in love and probably am never leaving this setting. I love it so much. But so my clinical interest is really in the highest level of acuity. So typically trauma ICU, I love working with the tracheostomy and ventilator dependent populations. So that's really kind of my bread and butter right there. Awesome. Yeah. So you, where'd you go to undergrad? I went to the George Washington University in Washington, oh, cool. D.C. for undergrad. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So you've been around the country. I have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. And then Northwestern for grad school. And I, right. I noticed you studied with Dr. Jerry Logeman. How cool yeah, is that? That was a wonderful, wonderful experience. I mean, yeah, she was an incredible instructor and I got to work with her, learn video fluoroscopy from her. So that's pretty cool. And we know things have come a long way since then, but that's just such a good, solid, basic foundation, I think. Oh my goodness. I think any of us, if any of us could have just sat through like one class with her, I know that would yeah. be such a privilege. So. I know I keep that textbook in my office. It's mostly just a little shrine, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, how cool, Kelsey. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? So we are going to talk about managing dysphagia in the patient with 
tracheostomy and who is mechanically ventilated. So these patients are always in ICU. So managing dysphagia in this population is just such a complex issue that just requires really complex interdisciplinary team management and really a lot of critical thinking skill. So I think that the most important thing when you're managing this population is to understand the pathophysiology that's underlying your patient's dysphagia because it's never just one thing. It's always multifactorial in this population, right? So I think we can just kind of dive into the different mechanisms of acquired dysphagia in the mechanically ventilated ICU patient. Awesome. Yeah. So I think the first and most obvious mechanism of dysphagia for these patients is endotracheal intubation. I mean, almost exclusively, these patients are repeatedly mechanically ventilated, multiple intubations sometimes during their hospital admission, really prolonged intubations. So I think one of the most important things is when you're doing a medical record review, when you're going to see one of these patients is to see how many times was my patient intubated during this hospitalization and for what total duration of time. So there's so much evidence out there on the effects of endotracheal intubation on swallow function and the prevalence of dysphagia in this population, the post-extubation population. So that's a pretty clear one. Yeah, and we know that the just pressure of the endotracheal tube on the tissue, on the mucosa of the pharynx, larynx, trachea, just causes some desensitization, trauma, edema. So those are all things to keep in mind. All right. Yeah. And then after your patient has been intubated for a very long period of time, the decision at some point is made to perform a tracheotomy. So we, I think you, you discussed already with what Jamie Fisher about does a tracheostomy tube itself cause dysphagia or not? So I think we know that just by itself, a tracheostomy tube is not the only reason for a patient's dysphagia, but a tracheostomy tube does cause changes. Like it decreases subglottic pressure, decreases your cough strength, decreases your sensation to laryngeal secretions. So we know that tracheostomy tubes will exacerbate dysphagia when, the, when they're an open lumen will exacerbate dysphagia um, that's already pre-existing in these patients. And then on top of that, then once the decision's made for a tracheotomy, then your patients are mechanically ventilated. So just ventilator dependency by itself, and we can dive a little bit more into like the different modes of ventilation. That'd be great, yeah. But depending on the mode that your vent that the vent is set on, your patient might not have control over even their own respiratory rate. So yeah, like I'm sure you've seen just so many patients out there who have dysphagia and it's a temporary one, but just because they're tachypnic for no yep. other reason than that, right? Yep. So yep. yeah, they can't coordinate their breathing and their swallowing and that swallow apneic period. So imagine that like layered on top of, you don't even know at what moment the ventilator is going to give you a breath. So that can be really challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, I'm going to back you up a little bit, Kelsey. So I, you know, I love to just myth bust on this podcast. And I think just one of the big, a big myth is a patient on a vent cannot swallow. 
Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. So I, you know, I love when I do get referrals for patients that are on beds. It's like, well, you can even, you can do a fees on the patient that's on a bed. I thought they couldn't even swallow. And so I love, I love to talk, you know, especially to RTs and things like that. I think that's such a huge population that we can educate about what we really can do and that some patients on vents absolutely can swallow and eat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. That's, I mean, one of the biggest myths that I've also heard, and I've also heard it go kind of an extreme the other way too, from some surgeons, even maybe saying, well, if the cuff's inflated, then they can aspirate. So we can just feed them with the cuff inflated too. So I think that there's, there are a few different myths out there that lie on both extremes. And maybe the answer is like somewhere in the middle. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's very true. Yeah. So definitely, I mean, I see patients every single day who are, who we get eating successfully while they're ventilated with tracheostomy. So I think it's pretty incredible. Fees has been so, so instrumental in getting us to this point. Yeah, because it used to be so difficult when we only had access to video swallow studies. So that's one of the reasons I really wanted to launch our fees program was how early can we intervene in these patients? And that was the biggest barrier was getting them down to fluoro. So yeah, can you talk a little bit more about that, Kelsey? So so you guys only had video fluoro in your in your facility for a long time. Yeah, we did. How long would the patients, like how long would it take before they could get down to fluoro to get one done? So it could be days, weeks, or a lot of times the radiologists might say, well, can't you just wait until they're weaned off the vent? They're clearly not ready to eat by mouth, to which I'm always trying to educate them. Well, we need to intervene now before it gets worse every day is muscle disuse atrophy is, you know, worsening of their dysphagia. So we've got to get in there and we've got to help them now. So yeah. And then we used to be able to do video swallows with a portable C-arm. Sometimes they would send them to ICU for that, but then there are radiation concerns, et cetera. So yeah. So fees really became the only option. Awesome. So how, how long ago did you get fees going? So I think it's been about two years now. Cool. Yeah. So that's been really great. And I've been slowly training some of our SLPs in it too. So now we've got another two up and running. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So, yeah, that's been really good. And I think a lot of people who come to work for us per diem too, one of their biggest draws is, oh my gosh, I really want these training and these training done the right way where it's over months and months and weeks interpret exams together and we write our reports together. Those things awesome. I know you talk about. Yeah. Yes. I love that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, I even just, I got this question again, somebody emailed me this today about working in acute care and why or how to justify to like your doctors or to your administration, the need for both. Because I think in hospitals, they say, oh, well, we have the x-ray, we have fluoro. Why don't you just use this? Why do we need to purchase fees? So I think it's so critical, you know, for hospitals to have access to both. Right. And access to both in general and access to both for the same patient. So it's not one or the other. You need both to get a full understanding of your patient's pathophysiology. So absolutely, I do both exams for many of my patients. I think fees is just preferred for me for this population because I want to see 
the laryngeal function and screen for any laryngeal pathology. So I think that, yes, we definitely, when we went to administration and said, this is what we need and we need funding to launch this program, we talked about what we are missing with video swallow studies, how we actually can't at all observe the tissue inside the larynx. We can't observe vocal fold motion and how this can help us cut down on ventilator time and ICU stay. I think if you're appealing to administration, you kind of want to speak their language and say, you know what, we could actually cut costs here too by getting in early, preventing pneumonia, helping your patients get out of ICU faster and helping your patients wean off the ventilator faster. So actually we got no resistance. They were just like, awesome. Yeah. We want it. And they funded it immediately. Just, yeah, it was really actually too easy. I don't know how that happened. (laughs) I love it. Oh, thanks for sharing that Kelsey. Yay. I made my day. Yeah. <laughs> did did you have to like did you put together a huge proposal like did you write out like a hundred page drawn out proposal yeah yeah right okay. so I did I wrote up this big long proposal and then I was expecting them to come back and say well we care about money show me how this is going to save us money so I also had this whole other spreadsheet going of how this was going to be cost saving and they actually didn't even want to see it they were just like oh uh, you say it's best for the patient we'll do it. And they just Yay. went for it. So that was, I mean, I love that's the work awesome. I work for because yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Oh, that's so good to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It awesome. was a big success story. Yeah. Good. So good. My eyes on a second scope, but we'll see. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great, Kelsey. I know I, people ask me all the time, like, is it worth putting all the time and energy into writing this big, big long proposal? And like, things like that don't scare me, but I'm always just like, yes, of course it's worth it. Like it's mm-hmm. going to make your job a ton easier. It's going to help so many patients. Of course it's worth it. So. Right. right. Awesome. Worth it. Yeah. yeah. Yay. If you or your facility is interested in a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies, please check out our wonderful sponsor, that's EndoHD. They have very easy-to-operate fees equipment that comes with fully automated archiving with zero downtime, intuitive software with one-touch recording, and the immediate fee study is ready for review with customizable fees report template is provided. So please contact them at ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fee systems requirements pricing or to request a live product demonstration that's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact all right so i totally got you off on like 27 tangents there no worries i just (laughs) dove straight into the the clinical stuff you know yeah all right so where where should we go from here Okay. Well, so I talked about the mechanisms of dysphagia being endotracheal intubation, tracheostomy tube, in those changes, the ventilator dependency itself. And then another thing we need to be considering for these patients is just the prolonged NPO status. So throughout all of these things that have been happening to your patient while they're in ICU, your patient probably has not been eating. So just an NPO status of several weeks for these patients just results in rapid muscle disease atrophy. So that can be really difficult to recover from. So I love, you know, getting in there right away so we can at least stop that process where it is and then hopefully reverse that 
So yeah, prolonged NPO status that results in just kind of deconditioning and muscle wasting of the oropharynx. And then some more risk factors for dysphagia in these patients are more systemic changes that happen. So sepsis and or systemic inflammatory response syndrome. So that's a really just broad term, but systemic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS is just when there's altered body temperature, altered heart rate, altered respiratory rate, and white blood cell count. So that's, you know, pretty vague. Like most patients who are in ICU actually meet those criterion. But when that's in the presence of an infection, then that's sepsis. And we've all seen the severely septic patient who has sepsis-associated encephalopathy, whose level of consciousness is thus altered. And that's the reason for their dysphagia too. So we frequently see that occurring in the ICU population. And then a lot of those patients, a huge proportion of them, go on to develop critical illness, myopathy, and polyneuropathy. And there's literature out there on this and how it relates to limb function and so little that I could find on how this is affecting the oropharyngeal musculature. So I think there's still a lot more to be done on this topic. Wow, but yeah. Yeah, definitely something we have to keep in mind if our patients are presenting almost as quadriplegic, just completely flaccid all over. How is there no involvement of the oropharyngeal musculature? I just don't see that yeah, happening. Yeah. So that's definitely playing a playing a role and we still have to discover what that role is. Yeah. So I think that kind of sums up all of the the things I can think of that might contribute to dysphagia in this population. But so usually almost all of those are at play when we're assessing this patient. So awesome. Thanks so much for sharing all that, Kelsey. Sure. Gotta get some Got to get these researchers working on that stuff. I know. Right? <laughs> if only I had time. <laughs> I know. I know. I would, I would re- like to someday, I think. But. Yeah. 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 Oh, my goodness, Kelsey. This is great. Yeah. All right. So how soon is too soon for SLP intervention? Okay. So this is a question that I get asked all the time. And I get asked it by other speech pathologists who I'm training. And I get asked it by nurses, by physicians. And I usually tell them the OR is too soon (laughs) for the SLP to be there. But really, anytime after that, once they're awakening off sedation, I want to be there, honestly. So I really tell our intensivists and our pulmonologists, you can go ahead and put the consult in when they're in the OR getting their tracheostomy tube placed. I know. I promise you, I will not show up to the OR and do my swallow eval, but I'll have them on my radar. I'll put them on my schedule for the next day. And when they're weaning off sedation, I'm going to show up and be one of the first ones to educate the patient. Hey, this is what's happened to you. This is why you cannot speak right now. Don't you worry. We're going to do the best we can to get your voice and your swallowing back. I know you're thirsty. I'm going to be here every day and working on it with you. So I think when a patient wakes up, that's the first thing they want. They're like, how come I can't speak? And why can't I eat? No one's giving me water. They're torturing me. And so I want to be there right away to educate the patient on what's going to happen. And then depending on how they're looking, even 24 hours after tracheostomy tube placement, I might want to trial a really slow partial cuff deflation, start to 
return the patient's sensation to the larynx and facilitate their secretion management in their cough. So we get in there, yeah, really early. Oh, I love that, Kelsey. That's great. I can see you just standing outside of the OR, just waiting just like for them waiting. to be finished. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite aunties let me come into the OR just to watch. It was the best yeah. experience of my oh, life. Oh, good. How cool. Yeah. 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 So I think also you asked me for kind of an article that I guess was practice changing for yeah. me. And I think this is where I want to drop that right now because yeah, yeah. there is an article that I read by Lori Burkhead in the ASHA wire that's just titled Swallowing Evaluation and Ventilator Dependency Considerations and Contemporary Approaches. So that was written back in, I think, 2011, and it was called Contemporary Approaches back then, right? And we're still not implementing some of these things in our practice. But when I read that article, I was like, oh my gosh, she so neatly summarized everything I wish I could articulate to a physician about why it's not a good idea to say, oh, these patients are too sick. Let's just wait it out. Let's just wait until they're better. How we might be doing our patients a disservice by doing that. And she really, I think, just nicely justifies why early intervention is needed for these patients. So I loved that. And I'll print that out and drop it at nursing stations if I need to. Yes. Great. Awesome. So we'll have that in the show notes too. So cool. People can definitely check that out. Can you kind of, I mean, go, go into a little bit more of that? So why, what do you tell, you know, doctors, physicians about why waiting can do more harm than good? Yeah. Well, so I think that physicians, for some reason, understand it so much better when you put it in physical therapy terms, right? So if you say, well, there's a huge focus on early mobilization of patients in ICU for patients who are mechanically ventilated. Do you know about A, B, C, D, E, F bundles? Is that a thing outside? So the ABCDEF bundle is a bundle of care plan that is applied to ICU patients who are intubated. And it goes over just, it's this bundle of order sets basically that helps to facilitate weaning from sedation, weaning from the ventilator, and it includes physical therapy for early mobility while patients are orally intubated. So there's this huge push for it. So I like to tell the physicians, well, it's the same for speech pathology. We need to be in there early for early mobilization of the oropharynx. And then I think they get it usually when you compare it to physical therapy and how physical therapy is in on this bundle and speech pathology should be too. Yeah. So every letter stands for different different words, but so B is usually both spontaneous awakening and spontaneous breathing trials. So spontaneous awakening trial would be weaning the patient from sedation and having them awake. And sometimes this goes wrong if your patient can't communicate and they get really agitated and then they need to be sedated again because they were trying to pull, self-extubate their endotracheal tube or they're not doing well on spontaneous breathing trials, seeing can this patient come off the ventilator and be extubated. So we could play a role there when the patients are tracheostomized. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Kelsey. Sure. All right. So let's get more into some vent basics. Yeah. So I think it's interesting how little I knew when I first started about how a ventilator works 
right? Yes. So yes. I'm thrown into ICU and it's like, okay, let's go do your speaking valve assessment in line on the vent. And I'm all excited. I have all my research. I'm doing the best thing ever for my patient, right? And then I go tell the physician, okay, so I'm about to go do a speaking valve trial with 324 over here. And they go, oh no, wait, the peak pressure is too high and the tidal volume demands. And I go, wait, what's that? And then they go, oh, no way. Are you touching my patient? Get out of here. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think you need to know the basics of the ventilator so that physicians and respiratory therapists will trust you to work with these patients. So there's, there are a few different things that we could talk about. I think first and foremost, we should talk about the different modes of ventilation. So there are a lot of different mode options out there that pulmonologists use. And I think they vary maybe by facility and by pulmonologist, which ones they use most frequently. But the ones that I see most frequently are assist control, SIMV, and spontaneous mode. Um, So assist control or AC mode is a pretty invasive form of ventilation in that the ventilator is doing almost all of the work for the patient. So the patient can be completely apneic. They might not trigger any breaths at all, but the ventilator will deliver either a preset volume or preset pressure to the patient at a rate that's set by the pulmonologist. So they would say, you know, 15 times per minute, this patient is going to receive 500 milliliters as their tidal volume. And so that happens exactly. So that's a pretty invasive mode of ventilation, but also a patient could still trigger their own breath. So let's say that the respiratory rate is set at 10. So I think that calculates out once every six seconds, right? The vent will deliver a breath. But if in between that, the patient wants to pull another breath, they'll generate a little bit of negative pressure. And then the vent again will deliver, but that preset volume that was prescribed. So this, I mean, it's important to understand this because these patients could hyperventilate. So if your patient, if you're working with them and they're maybe feeling anxious and their respiratory rate rises, so they have the preset rate that's being delivered by the vent. And then they're triggering more breaths on top of that. And every breath is at that fixed, maybe high tidal volume, then your patient might hyperventilate. So that's something good to keep in mind. And then there is SIMB. So that's, I always have to think about this, synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation. So it's kind of a mix between, I think, between assist control and spontaneous mode. So the pulmonologist will still set the minimum rate that they want their patient to breathe at. I don't want you breathing any less than 12 times per minute. So 12 times per minute, you're going to receive this breath, but they could slowly decrease the respiratory rate and allow that patient to more frequently trigger their own breaths that might be at their own volume. So they might inhale their own tidal volume. So that's a nice weaning tool. And then there is spontaneous mode. So spontaneous mode is, I think, the the end stage when your patient's ready to get 
leaned from the ventilator and the patient is triggering all of their own breaths. So yeah, I think that's kind of just a basic summary of the modes of ventilation. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I don't think I ever knew what SIMV stood for. Yeah. So thank you for for explaining that. Yeah, I have to think about it. I don't think anyone actually ever says. The whole I know thing I've that. I've written it a million times, but I've never stopped to think what it actually does that mean. So. Yeah. Are you doing yeah. lots of these for for ventilated patients also? I have I have two facilities that I do them constantly at. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they, those RTs are probably like my biggest advocates. I mean, they they so much believe in you know what we do and getting them swallowing early and. Yeah. Yeah. So I've had just such wonderful experiences with them. Definitely. And what do you know, what modes are they usually on when you're scoping? Uh, Some, I'd say probably most assist control. Assist control. Yeah. 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 So. So, yeah. And then, you know, some other ventilator basics. So there's tidal volume, which is abbreviated like big V, little t. So that's just the normal volume of air that's displaced over inhalation and exhalation. So I frequently see the tidal volume when it's set on the ventilator set to 400, 450, or 500 milliliters. And you could ask a pulmonologist about this, but I know that there is kind of a trend towards lowering tidal volumes to reduce lung damage um, right now. So I know our pulmonologists are leaning towards lower tidal volumes. But sometimes if we're deflating the cuff and giving this patient a leak, we might need to slowly increase the tidal volume just to compensate for that leak. So that's important to understand. And then I think we all know what respiratory rate is, the number of times you breathe per minute, and how this affects the patient's coordination of swallowing and breathing. So that's a really important one to keep an eye on when you're assessing your patients. Then there's on the ventilator, there is the FiO2 or the fraction of inspired oxygen. So this, I mean, if room air is 21%, Some of our patients, their FiO2 is 40, 50, 60%, or even higher. And I don't have a clear cutoff at at this exact FiO2, I will not see you, I will not work with you. But you just keep in mind that as you see that number higher and higher, that's just a reflection of sicker lungs and a sicker patient where you need to exercise more caution, I think. Yeah, and then... What else do we have on a ventilator? There are so many numbers on there. (laughs) There's the PEEP, which is the positive end expiratory pressure. So that's just kind of the residual amount of air that's left in your lung after you've exhaled in that air that keeps the alveoli open. So when you have an open system, like when we tracheostomize someone, then you lose your PEEP. But then when we apply a speaking valve, we restore that physiologic PEEP. So then they might not need it applied from the ventilator. So these are are things that you need to work with your respiratory therapist on adjusting PEEP while you're placing speaking valve. And then really importantly, the peak inspiratory pressure, we're always watching that when we're doing speaking valve trials in line on the ventilator because you don't want the peak inspiratory pressure to rise too high. So we don't know if it's a reflection of airway, increased airway pressure or increased plateau pressure, but definitely work with the respiratory therapist and they can 
find that out for you on the vent, but that can help you kind of diagnose what's going on with the patient. Is it secretions and mucus plugging or an upper airway obstruction, or is it breath stacking, air trapping, like they don't have enough time to exhale all the air. So that'll just cause barotrauma. So that's important to keep an eye on as well. Yeah. So I think those are all the, most of the numbers that I want to watch on the vent. Awesome. So, so you going back a little bit, Kelsey, you said, are there any specific numbers that you won't touch a patient on? Like if you go in and you see, is, is there anything that might be too high, too low? Yeah. I think that, you know, I don't, again, I don't have a firm cutoff, but I think with every, you know, 10% increase in FiO2, for example, I'm going to be more cautious with what I'm doing that day. So if I planned to deflate the cuff and place a speaking line in the vent, in line on the vent, but their FiO2 is 80 or hundred percent, I might change my treatment plan. doesn't mean I won't work with them at all, but I might not deflate the cuff or put a speaking valve in line, but we could still maybe facilitate some volitional swallows, et cetera. And then also, well, for, in terms of a cutoff for peak inspiratory pressure, the, a cutoff for me is 40 centimeters of water pressure there. Okay. So yeah, I do actually have one. So I think in general, most pulmonologists want to keep the peak inspiratory pressure below 30 centimeters of water pressure, kind of might vary but based on their disease process. But generally, I see pressures between 16 to 22 centimeters of okay. water pressure. So that's kind of a good range for me. And if I see it approaching 30 or in the, in the 30s, then I might hold off and say, what's going on with this patient? I think they might just need medical attention. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. I love how you just said that. Sometimes we can't work our magic with everybody. Yeah. Not, not everyone. <laughs> Sometimes they are just a little too sick and they just do need a little bit more time for medical yeah. help. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So we're, what's next? Evaluation. Yeah. Evaluation. So yeah, I think we should talk about how do we evaluate swallow function in patients with tracheostomy who are on the vent. So I think that the first step to any swallow evaluation should just be the most thorough medical record review that you can do. So we want to review, just like any patient, their historical risk factors for dysphagia, what chronic diagnoses do they have that place my patient at risk? Do they have a history of stroke? Do they have a history of COPD, et cetera? And then review the patient's hospital course and say, what occurred during this hospitalization that might have precipitated a new dysphagia? What things did we inflict on the patient that might precipitate dysphagia, intubations, et cetera, surgeries, nerve injuries during surgery, et cetera. And then we're going to, like I talked about earlier, we're going to consider the total length and the number of endotracheal intubations, the date of the tracheostomy tube placement, the total number of days your patient's been in PO, and then their medical comorbidities at the time you're seeing them, sepsis, encephalopathy, those things. So once you've you know, gotten a really good picture of your patient's history and their current illnesses, then you're going to go in and just assess the current ventilator settings. 
So you're going to take a look. Is the FiO2 100%? Is the peak inspiratory pressure 40 centimeters of water pressure? Do I need to wait and do I need to speak with the pulmonologist? Or are they at a relatively low FiO2, like 35%? Is their peak pressure okay, 20 centimeters of water pressure, then I'll say, okay, this patient's a good candidate. I'll review all of those things that we just talked about. So the mode of ventilation, their PEEP, all of those those fun ventilator basics. And then we're going to discuss the plan with the respiratory therapist, the intensivist, the pulmonologist, and say, what's the plan for weaning today? Almost every day, I mean, everyone's goal is to get this patient off the vent. So there's usually a spontaneous breathing trial every day for most of my patients. So I say, what time are you doing the spontaneous breathing trial? Sometimes I like to coordinate the speaking valve placement at that time. So you want to coordinate with your interdisciplinary team. And then the first thing I want to do when I lay hands on my patient is to try to achieve the most normal upper airway that I can. So that means cuff deflation. And speaking valve or one-way valve placement, if possible. So we're going to trial the cuff deflation. We do it very slowly. Let your patient slowly acclimate to that change. Requires usually, if it's the first time, a ton of suctioning. I usually let RT kind of handle on the first run a ton of tracheal suctioning that your patient will need from all those secretions pulled on top of the cuff. And then once the cuff is down, we're going to assess your patient's airway patency. So how do we do that on the vent? I actually think it's kind of easier when they're on the ventilator than when they're not because you've got numbers. We've just got data points to tell you if there's a leak. So we expect a significant drop in the patient's exhaled tidal volume and a significant drop in the peak inspiratory pressure. So that'll tell us that there's a leak around the tracheostomy tube, that air is escaping out the oropharynx and not just out of the tracheostomy tube. So that's a good thing. So when I hear those alarms go off, I'm like, yay, ding, 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 we have a winner. (laughs) Upper airway patency is there. I really like that. So yeah, that's one of the first things that we're doing. And then even before I put the speaking valve in line, I just ask my patient to cough to try to clear some secretions from their larynx that they haven't been able to while that cuff was inflated. We do sometimes a few, usually they achieve some voicing even without the speaking valve in line just right away when you deflate the cuff. So we might get them doing a few pitch glides and just getting acclimated to how does it feel with the cuff down. And then I'll go ahead and place the speaking valve in line and proceed as we normally would with a speaking valve trial. Yeah, so I think these patients need to slowly build their endurance for this. So there are so many considerations to keep in mind, but yeah, we're, we're going to work on that daily. I think, Oh, I'm still, still leading up to, we're assessing swallow function. So we do all of these things as a precursor to, is my patient ready for an instrumental study? So we first want to achieve the most normal airway possible. If all of that went super well and you got the cuff deflated and you got the speaking valve in line on the ventilator, that's great. They're an excellent candidate for your instrumental exam. But people say, oh, you know what? Like they couldn't tolerate the speaking valve. So we just can't do their swallow study. 
And I think that's a huge myth. Why not? Why can't you? I know it's not ideal. It's not the ideal condition to be swallowing with the cuff inflated with no speaking valve, but are those things mandatory conditions for this patient to swallow safely? So I think that speech pathologists need to understand the difference between ideal and mandatory conditions for your patient to eat. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yes. So I, and yeah. you know what, Lori Burkhead in that article talks a lot about the ideal versus mandatory conditions. And that made me think really critically about my practice and what am I doing? Wait, am I holding on this? Am I postponing or stalling this patient's progress just because I'm waiting for the absolute most ideal condition that might not happen for another week and when I can get the physician to downsize the tracheostomy tube? No, in that whole week that we're just waiting on a trach change, we really, your patient might be able to eat something, one texture maybe by mouth. So let's say your patient cannot tolerate even cuff deflation. We can still go ahead and proceed with a swallow exam. So I usually do fees for this population, but yeah, we can assess the swallow physiology that way. Absolutely. And if they can tolerate cuff deflation and speaking valve, then I like to assess the swallow in multiple conditions. So we can find out what, which conditions are mandatory, which conditions are ideal for this patient. Because usually our patients, when they're weaning off the vent, they're in assist control, then they're in spontaneous mode, then they're on the trach mask, then they're back in assist control, and they're all over the place. And then I get calls from the nurse, wait, you said this patient could eat only in this mode, but what about now he just had to do this to your patient? So we want to kind of get all those answers if we can. So yeah, I like to do fees with the tracheostomy cuff, both inflated and deflated with the speaking valve, both on and off. And if possible with the ventilator mode in multiple settings. So maybe assist control and spontaneous mode. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That just sounds so intuitive. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, why are we not doing I that know, sometimes? We were yeah. always just waiting yeah. for things to be perfect. I think yeah. SLPs want everything right. to be perfect. Right. You know? And you're like, well, we, we might be able to work something out here. So yeah. 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 Awesome. Exactly. So yeah, I think that that's kind of how we evaluate swallow function for these patients. And then we make our diet recommendations just like we do any other patient. And I really try to get my patients swallowing at least one texture while they're on the ventilator. A lot of these patients already have G-tubes placed. A lot of surgeons have a preference to place a G-tube at the time of the tracheostomy. So that doesn't mean that you can't still aim for one consistency by mouth. But at least I think it is a good idea sometimes to have that backup method. If what if those conditions we talked about, cuff deflation, speaking valve in line are mandatory for your patient to swallow safely? And then what happens if they can't do those things? So it's nice sometimes to have that backup of the G-tube just while they're that critically ill. Yeah. Yeah. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. 
Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.